It's good uh, to be here today. Uh, I know many of you, uh, though I don't come here often to preach. Uh, I checked, the last time I preached here was actually 2016, uh, September. And I checked, I only preached three times uh, my whole lifetime here. Uh, so it's nice to have a fellowship with you all uh, through the Word of God. Uh, today we'll be continuing Galatians 3, verse 15. Uh, the title is Law and Promise. How about we pray? Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you we can gather here together uh, in this comfortable, comfortable place. Uh, please help me, Father, your servant, to preach clearly uh, that uh, what we hear uh, is, is your wisdom, is your truth, uh, is your grace. And help us, Father, prepare our hearts with the work of the Holy Spirit uh, that we may humble to listen to the rightness uh, of the law and again turn us to faith in Jesus. Uh, we pray this in your Son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. What is the function of law and regulation? I mean, most people will say that the function of the law uh, would be uh, to prevent people from doing wrong things. Take, for example, the recent issue surrounding uh, foreign workers in Malaysia. Uh, we know for a long time that there are exploitation and abuses. They have to pay excessive agent fees uh, just to come over. And they often put them uh, in bondage, uh, in debt. And when they are here, they have to work very hard and pay very little for the long hours they put in. Uh, so for a long time, the NGOs in our countries are asking for clear rules and regulations uh, to govern the foreign work, uh, workers' market. Uh, they believe that with the proper legal framework in place, uh, those foreign workers will be protected and exploitation will be reduced. Of course, uh, we are sure that if, if the laws are passed in parliament, uh, if there are those regulations to govern it, uh, we can be sure that some business owners will be less likely uh, to mistreat them uh, because they are afraid of breaking the law and, fa and facing the punishment. But I think uh, we can also know, uh, as Malaysians, that we know what we are capable of. Uh, we know that even with the new law in place, we know that there will be still many employers who will continue to exploit them. Uh, they will probably try to find legal loopholes to do that. Of course, many will still even blatantly break the law as long as they are not caught by the authorities. I mean, we all do that, isn't it? You see, uh, what the law is doing here uh, is not only to prevent wrongdoings. If you think about how people still break the law, uh, the law, when it's there, is actually to reveal, to reveal the wrongdoing. Uh, when there's a law, it is more obvious that those who do wrong uh, are committing an evil act. And they're breaking the law and they're deserving of punishment. And so in our Galatians passage today, when Paul talks about the law, uh, it is this second function of the law that is emphasizing. He wants to tell us that the purpose of the law in the Old Testament is actually to reveal the sinfulness of mankind. Uh, he wants to say, tell us that the law cannot make someone righteous. The law will only reveal your unrighteousness. And here we see that Paul is speaking about the function of the law. Why? Because he's trying to explain the relationship between the law and the promise, uh, both of which comes from God. And we see in our previous sermon, in the previous passage, uh, Paul already made a comparison between law and promise. Uh, back in chapter 3, verse 10, he said that those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, whereas those who rely on faith will receive the promise of God through Abraham. And this promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So in the passage before this, Paul had already established 
that what is important are the promises, not the law. Uh, the promises are much more important. Actually, the law is not that important at all. And so here lies the big question. Uh, if the law is not important at all, then why did God give law to the Israelites in the first place? Why is it that the law occupied such a big role in the Old Testament? Uh, when we read it, especially in the first five books, the so-called the Pentateuch. Uh, this is exactly the question that Paul seeks to answer in our passage today, starting from chapter 3, verse 15 of Galatians. Uh, but before he seeks to explain the function of the, of the law, why God gave it to them in the first place, uh, he first wants to reiterate a point. He first wants to reemphasize that the law will not affect the promises given to Abraham uh, because the promises come first and the law comes after. So Paul says in chapter 3, verse 17, the law which comes 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So we see it graphically. It is only after God had given the promises to Abraham, only after a gap of 430 years, then came the law that God gave through Moses. So here is the argument. Because God had already promised beforehand, to Abraham. So what comes afterward, the law, does not change the promise, does not annul the promises. And so in chapter 3, verse 15, he begins with an analogy. He says that even with the agreements, even with the covenants made between human beings, actually the word covenant just means contracts. He said even with the contracts made between human beings, uh, when the stipulation of the contracts have been signed off, have been set, uh, it cannot be set aside, isn't it? Once you sign off a contract, you cannot change it. You cannot set it aside. Uh, to give you a modern analogy okay, about how you cannot change a contract that has been ratified, let's say you call someone to install a new aircon in your house. Uh, so the workers have come, they have done their job, they finish it, and before they left, they give you an invoice with the amount of 1,500 ringgit uh, to be transferred in the bank's company account after that. Uh, so this 1,500 ringgit is the amount agreed between you and the company. Well, you cannot later on call the boss and say, hey boss, can I pay you 50 ringgit less? Ah? You know, just now when the workers came out, I gave them good soft rings, you know. You give some discounts, how about please? And they'll be quite annoying, isn't it? Uh, and really just cheapskate. Uh, you have already ratified the terms uh, when you accept the invoice, right? You cannot require to pay less, nor the company can require you to pay more. Likewise, Paul says here that 430 years ago, God had already established a covenant, an agreement with Abraham. The agreement is that he will give the inheritance to Abraham's offspring. And what are the terms of the covenant that we know previously? What are the terms? There's no term, right? Abraham does not need to do anything on his side. He only needs to believe God's promises, and God will give the inheritance. So when God had made this promise, it will not be changed. When 430 years later, when God gave them the Mosaic law, required them to obey it, even then it does not annul the promise. And so Paul said, conclude this in verse 18. He says, for 
if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, the promise means that it is not by obeying the works. If it is by obeying, then the promise is, is off, is enough. But God did give a promise. So this is the main point of verses 15 to verses 18. Uh, but within this section, uh, there's, pro- there's a very perplexing sentence in verse 16. Uh, many Christians who have scratched their head trying to understand it. Uh, probably you have also have asked this question in your Bible studies. Uh, in verse 16, uh, Paul says that when God gave the promise to Abraham and his offspring, he referred to only one descendant and not many. And this one descendant is Jesus Christ. How does he make the argument? Here he emphasized on the singular form of the noun. He said even in Hebrew, the noun, the word offspring is singular. Offspring, not offsprings. Therefore, it cannot refer to more than one person. Now, if you are, you are quite good in your English, uh, you may be thinking that Paul is trying to be a bit mischievous here, isn't it? Because in grammar, we know uh, there is such thing called collective noun. Even though a collective noun is in singular, it can refer to many numbers. Uh, for example, a very obvious uh, example is the word jury. Okay? The word jury is in singular, uh, but it's, ref- it's referred to a group of people. Uh, you can't say that there's a jury, therefore only one person in the jury, right? not juries. Uh, therefore, it's the same with the word offspring. Uh, the word offspring in singular, in English as well as in Hebrew, the, 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 this singular form collective now is often used to refer to many descendants. In fact, if you look through the Bible in the Hebrew language, uh, there are many clear instances uh, when Genesis author write this, uh, the singular is clearly used to refer to many Jewish offsprings. Uh, so what is Paul doing here? Uh, to cut the long explanation short, uh, though Paul here is emphasizing on the singular form of the noun, Actually, his method of exegeting is not based on strictly grammar. He's not grammatical kind of exegesis. Uh, His method is Christological, not grammatical. Now, let me explain. He wants to emphasize that the promise is directed to one offspring only, Jesus Christ. Uh, Because ultimately, all the promises of Abraham are only fulfilled through Jesus. This is how we should understand how Paul uh, interprets. Uh, You see, in the book of Genesis, uh, it is obvious that the promises that God gave to Abraham were for them to inherit the land of Canaan, isn't it? Uh, And who are those who inherit the land of Canaan? Uh, It's many Jewish descendants, many of them, who were inherited. That's what we know clearly from the Old Testament scripture. However, in the bigger plan of God, when we have the New Testament, uh, we know that the final inheritance that God wants to give to Abraham's offspring is not just the land of Canaan. Ultimately, he wants to give to Abraham's offspring the eternal life in God's kingdom. Uh, and that inheritance can only be obtained through Jesus Christ. Uh, that is why he said it's only through Jesus, the only offspring. Uh, now let's go back to the fact that Paul emphasizes on a singular form of the noun. Uh, I think he's indeed trying to be a mischievous here. Uh, but it's only because he wants to counter the arguments of the Judaizers. You see, the Judaizers might be saying that they are Abraham's true descendants. The Jewish people will be saying that the whole lot of us, all of us Jewish 
people here, we are all born under Abraham's genealogy. Therefore, we will inherit the promises that God gave, uh, that God gave to Abraham. But Paul said, no, not the whole lot of you, not the whole lot of you Jewish people. It's only those who trust in Jesus Christ. Not you offsprings, but only one offspring in Christ. Because he wants to emphasize it is not through the biological connection. It is through the Christ connection. So right now, let's spend some time uh, thinking about the implications here. Uh, I think the important thing is that these verses help us to understand how we are to interpret the Old Testament. Now, uh, The framework that Paul is using here is having Christ as the ultimate fulfillment. With the coming of Jesus Christ, we know that the final salvation is about forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Therefore, we have to use this framework to interpret all the writings and the narratives in the Old Testament. And so when we read about in the book of Genesis, in the, uh, in the Pentateuch, about Israelites entering the land of Canaan, uh, it's not God telling us Christians that we also will now receive many material blessings on this earth. Uh, it is only a partial fulfillment that points to the final inheritance in Jesus. And this is what we call biblical theology. Now, I, don't know, I want you to know that this is not just an academic exercise uh, that the scholars talk about in classrooms. Uh, but these are important in, in principles it has important implications to how we understand God's words, especially in the Old Testament. Uh, there are many churches now who does not have this right understanding of biblical theology. That's why they misinterpret and misapply the passages uh, from the Old Testament. If you have heard enough sermons uh, of Old Testament, if you've been to different churches, if you hear different speakers, especially on one same passage, you realize this one thing. Different churches, different speakers can have very different meanings, implications from one same passage of the Old Testament. Sometimes one passage in the Genesis can be a good moral lesson about how you to be a better character. It can even be about how you can be confident and successful in your work. I haven't heard about a Genesis passage about how to choose a Christian girlfriend. You see, those, those moral lessons, those implications can be very interesting very attractive to people, very nice to listen to, but they miss the point. They miss the point that in the bigger plan of God, it's really pointing to the final salvation plan uh, in Jesus. I think often the biggest problem uh, is in our postmodern world, that people are more interested to what appeals to them. Wherever they say makes sense, give you some immediate applications, uh, we are satisfied. Even when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to the Word of God, people are not so interested in the true intention of the author itself. They, can only, they only want to think about what can I get out of the text. Uh, that is typical postmodern problem that we have in our churches. So that was the end of our first point of the sermon, uh, which was the law does not allow the promise. Now the next point uh, is the function of the law. And uh, now we come to the point where Paul probably begins, probably, uh, begins to explain uh, why did God give the law to the Israelites when the truly important thing are the promises, not the law. The answer comes in verse 19. And the whole answer is actually only in six words. Why then the law? Six words. 
it was added because of transgressions. Uh, now there are two ways, at least two ways, or maybe three ways, to understand these six words. The law was added because of transgressions. One way we can understand it is that uh, the law was added to restrain, uh, to stop them from sinning. The other way is to say that the law was added to reveal, to show that they indeed they have transgressed. As I've alluded in my introduction, I think what Paul wants to emphasize, emphasize, want to bring home to us, is not the first point, uh, but it's actually the second point. The law was added to show, to reveal their transgressions, their sinfulness. How do we know that Paul really wants to emphasize the second one and not the first one? Uh, if you look at the immediate context, uh, context as our king, if you look at the other verses surrounding this passage, uh, it clearly shows us that Paul wants to zoom in on the negative role of the law, uh, not the positive one. Uh, notice in verse 23, Paul says that we were held captive, we were imprisoned under the law. Right? It's a negative description. Uh, what is the image of this, if this, verses, of this verse here? I say that the law is like a judge. The law passed down the sentence that will be thrown into prison. Why? Because we could not obey the commandments of the law. Therefore, we are to receive the punishments stipulated in the law. In the same way, this is how we are to understand verse 24. Uh, when Paul says that before Christ came, the law was our guardian. You see, when we read the word guardian in this passage, uh, what do we often think of? We probably think that the guardian is like a, like a teacher, someone who corrects the child, someone who helps the child to behave properly, uh, like, a, like someone who uh, slowly brings them to do the right thing. But I think in this context of the passage, uh, we should probably view the guardian not like a normal teacher, uh, but, a, but like a disciplined teacher like the guru discipline in our school. Uh, let's think back to our secondary days, our school days. What is the picture that you come to our mind when we think of our guru discipline? Is it someone who slowly correct you and help you do the right thing? No, isn't it? Guru discipline is someone who with a long one-meter cane, <laughs> someone who is there to give you punishment. Well, when I think back, my, discipline, my guru discipline during my secondary school years is some the tall, bulky man, dark skin. He has a moustache that's thicker than mine. <laughs> he looks more like a prison warden to me than a teacher. Uh, this is what the law is like to those who are under it. It's there to give punishment to those who have done wrong. Uh, what is clear in here is that uh, Paul is not giving a positive role to the, to the law. Uh, he's, when he says the law is our guardian, uh, he does not mean that okay, the law will slowly reform us the Lord will help us to do good. And when we are good enough, then we'll believe in Christ. No, no, that's not what he's saying. What he meant to say is that the Lord imprisons us under his judgment. We are trapped in it. And when we Christ came, we are freed from the law judgment through justification by faith. See, the law shows us that we have committed many wrongs. Uh, it shows us that we should receive those punishments. And therefore, we need to trust in Jesus Christ. We trust in Jesus to do what? That he died on the cross 
in order to receive those punishments on our behalf. Now we trust that He can help us remove the curse of the law so that we are right, we are made right before God. And so this is how we should read verse 24. So then the law was our guru discipline until Christ came in order that we might be set free, justified by faith. I think a lot of times when I realize that when we think about the function of the law, uh, we, when we say that the law serves to restrain our sin, uh, is in, we, we say that it is, when, it is because the laws we have in our mind are those we are able to keep. Because we can keep them, we think, oh, the law is trying to restrain me. For instance, when we hear, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal things. Okay, oh, we good people, we, we can keep those laws when we know them. Only ignorant people cannot keep them. Only truly evil people, bad people commit these things, not us. But I think the scenario is altogether different when the standard of the laws is a lot higher. If the laws we have are do not hate your brothers and sisters, do not have any impure thoughts of anybody in your mind, do not be greedy for more material wealth, when we hear these laws, we will not say, oh, this law can restrain our behaviors. It cannot. We can only say that these laws show truly that we are guilty, that we are condemned. You see, when I put it this way, I'm guilty as well. Pastors are not like, you know, holy. Pastors are also sinners. Uh, this is exactly what the law does. It reveals our sinfulness. See, through the law in the Old Testament, God shows us the punishment that we should truly receive for our sins. If you just take two verses in Deuteronomy chapter 28, it says here, if you are not careful to do all the words of this law, they are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. Then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions. Affliction severe and lasting, and sickness grievous and lasting. This is how the law in the scripture imprisons us under the judgment of God. Do you feel the weight of these curses if you know that it applies to you directly? These curses are not only for the Jewish people back then. It should fall upon everybody who do not fear God. Because it's not only Israel, but the whole world belongs to God. These curses in Deuteronomy are very severe indeed. Every time I read it, if you know that it should apply to you, it will make you cringe. But you should know that these are truly righteous judgment that we deserve to receive from God. Of course, there are many people out there in the world, non-Christians. Of course, they will object to this kind of judgment that we do not deserve it, this is not fair, why is God so cruel? But you know what? All this objection only serves to reveal more of their unrighteousness, that they do not know God, they do not fear Him, they do not see His authority. But we, but we when we, through the work of the Holy Spirit, when we can see the rightness of God's judgment, then this will lead us to put our faith in Christ. 
You see, in fact, the judgment of the law is not only in the Old Testament pages. The judgment of the law is actually in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say when he first came to preach the gospel, when he preached on the Sermon of the Mount in the book of Matthew? He said, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the Pharisees in, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, you need to be as perfect as God your Father to be in it. He said, if your right eye causes you to have lustful thoughts of anybody, then you have to enter hell. That is in the gospel that Jesus preached. He preached the judgment of the law. It is only when we understand the judgment that Jesus spoke about, then we will understand what it means to have faith in him. We have faith in him that he will redeem us from the righteous judgment of God. But you see again, the sad thing is that many churches now do preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word itself, but they do not talk much about the judgment of the law. They preach Jesus without even talking about the wrath uh, that comes from, from, uh, from God. What do they preach? They preach, believe in Jesus and you'll be freed of your guilty feelings. Depend on Jesus and you'll fulfill your life through potential. Trust in Jesus and your life will now be happier. This is not only the problems of the, of the preacher and churches. It is also the problem of us churchgoers. Now, when it comes to church gatherings, what are you hoping to obtain? Is it to have a group of friends to have fellowship weekly? Is it so that you can fulfill your need for religion? So that after coming, you feel a sense of peacefulness in your heart? You see, when people come to church for these kind of reasons, they might come one week when it's convenient for them. And they will not come the next week when it's inconvenient. But however, if we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ correctly, uh, we should be saying the same thing as the apostle Peter. What did Peter say to Jesus in the gospel of John? He said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where shall we go? But Jesus with the words of eternal life. What do we come to church for? We come to church to hear the word of God. The words that bring us life. Where else should we go on a Sunday morning if not to a church gathering to hear this? We need to know that often, uh, for many of us, uh, it is only one day out of seven that through the hearing of God's words within God's people, that our faith in Jesus is refined, is strengthened. Whereas on the other six days, uh, we are constantly in the world, being influenced by the world to, to harden our hearts to suppress the truth about God. We need to hear the righteous law of God so that when we are reminded again of our state of sinfulness, we will again turn to Christ. This is the second point of the sermon. Uh, the function of the law is to reveal our sins so that we may put our trust in Jesus. Before we move on to the third point, uh, let, uh, let me just comment briefly on verses 19 to 20. Uh, which can be hard to understand. Verse 19 says, The law was put in place through angels by the intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. 
See, these few words have generated a lot of different interpretations. Uh, a Bible scholar in his commentary uh, has jokingly said that just as the law comes 430 years after the promise, he said there's probably 430 different kinds of interpretation for just these first 20. Uh, but today I'll only give you one interpretation uh, that I think is the most probable one. Uh, firstly, uh, that the law of Moses are delivered through angels. It's an undeniable fact uh, that's been attested multiple times in the New Testament. So uh, you can refer to chap Acts chapter 7, verse 53, and Hebrews 2, verse 2 at your own time. And, and the intermediary here refers to Moses. Uh, therefore, what Paul says in Galatians here is that the law was given to the Israelites through angels and through Moses. Okay? So there are two middlemen here. If you can see in the diagram, Okay, uh, the law are given through angels uh, and through Moses. Uh, it's a bit offline, but it's okay. Uh, on the other hand, the promise was given directly from God to Abraham. So the comparison that Paul wants to make is that the promise is superior because it was given directly. Uh, but the law is inferior because it needed two intermediaries. Uh, this is what I think is, is the most suitable interpretation. Uh, but when I look at this, you know, it looks a bit like our MLM, our multi-level marketing, isn't it? <laughs> if you only have one outline above you, wow, you're very gang. You earn a lot of commission. If you have three outlines before you, okay, uh, you're much lower down the scheme. Uh, this is what I think Paul is trying to say about why the promise are more superior. Now we come to our third point, sons and daughters in Christ. Paul continues to say in verse 25, saying that now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guru discipline, the, the, the guardian. For in Christ Jesus, we are all sons and daughters through faith. Becoming sons and daughters of God means that we will no longer receive his righteous wrath. Uh, because in Christ Jesus, our transgressions have been forgiven. Uh, truly, it is a, it is a glorious privilege to be made sons and daughters of God. Sometimes I think that in order to, to, to imagine, in order to, to appreciate how glorious it is to be children of God, I don't think we have to imagine how glorious life is in heaven, uh, whether we'll be flying or living in a cloud or how big is our bungalow, uh, in order to imagine you know, how privileged we are uh, to be made sons and daughters. I think often all we need to see is that the wonderful things that God has already given us mankind uh, to enjoy. I uh, see God has already given us mankind so many amazing abilities and potentials uh, to achieve so many extraordinary things on earth. Uh, we should always be reminded that all this goodness that we experience are God's grace for us, our so-called common grace. And we should know that these are gracious provisions that we do not actually deserve. We don't deserve this enjoyment, these privileges as human beings because we in our rebellion had all once turned away from God. We refused to give thanks to Him. And so under the judgment of the law, we should all lose this enjoyment. We should lose all these privileges. But in Christ Jesus, we know that what we can enjoy, the good thing, the moral thing we can enjoy as human beings will not be taken away from us forever. It is there for us because God wants us to enjoy Him. 
and we know that more goodness will be added to us in the future. That is what is meant to be children of God. And in verse 28, Paul said that this blessing in Christ Jesus will be given to everyone, all who have faith in him, regardless of their status on earth now. So he says, all have the same blessing through the same faith. There's neither Greek, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Now, these are three very significant categories of status in human society. Okay? Uh, in, each of, in each pair of these categories, one is superior, the other one is inferior. Of course, we know that the superior one are the Jews, the free, and the male. Uh, you know, back in the first century, a, a pious Jewish man, a pious Jewish person, will often say this prayer of thanksgiving in the morning. This is how they give thanks to God in the morning. Say, oh God, thank you for making me a Jew and not a non-Jew. Thank you for making me a free man and not a slave. Thank you for making me a man and not a woman. Sorry, brothers, please don't say this kind of prayer, okay? <laughs> Your sister in Christ will wall up you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but on a more serious note, uh, we all know why the superior are more superior, why the inferior are more inferior. Uh, we all know the inferior status of a slave. Right? Just look just look at our foreign workers in our country who are being oppressed left, right, and center. And when it comes to ethnicity, we know in certain places where your race gives you a lot more superiority. If you are a white person in America, you are blessed. But if you are a colored person, you'll be marginalized. And for the females, we also know that even now, many of them have been treated unfairly. They've been ruled harshly by their male counterpart, especially in traditional society. But in Jesus Christ, Paul said, all these differences of classes will be abolished. In Christ, everyone will receive the same blessing. Everyone will receive the same honor, the same dignity. In God's kingdom, suppressive, oppressive systems will be destroyed. All the evil acts of the powerful superior ones will be stopped. Now, these are the important points that Paul wants to make in verses 26 to 29. Uh, but before I end, I just want to make two more comments on two important issues within these verses uh, that might cause misunderstanding. Uh, the first one is about baptism. Uh, when Paul says in verse 27, therefore, as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. As many of you have been baptized, have put on Christ. Uh, he's not making baptism as the means in which we are united to Christ. Uh, here we have to say that uh, it is obvious that Paul is referring to water baptism. Okay? Uh, it cannot be any other way. Uh, but Paul is not giving a tight theological argument about what the ritual water baptism does. Rather, he's speaking about it in a, in a practical way. Uh, because you see, back in the first century, everyone who first believed in Jesus Christ will be baptized immediately. Uh, so back then, baptism is practically an outward sign of everyone who has faith in Jesus. Uh, we have to know that for Paul and the whole New Testament, uh, what makes us children of God is not the ritual of the water baptism, uh, but it's faith in Jesus. And we should also know that Paul is well aware. Uh, back then, even now, even those who have gone through water, water baptism, uh, they can end up abandoning their faith at a later point of time. That was the first one. Uh, the second one is about male and female. 
Uh, when Paul said that in verse 28, uh, there's neither Jews nor Greek, slaves nor free, male nor female. Uh, we can totally agree with the first two, isn't it? Uh, we can say that, okay, there should be really no differences, no distinction between people of different races and different class testers, especially in the church. Uh, but, but can we use this verse to say that because it's neither male nor female, that the Bible is for neutral gender identity? I mean, can someone try to kind of squeeze the argument in? Uh, that it's not important to be a male or female in God's eyes. Uh, well, other parts of the Bible are very clear, isn't it? That gender identity is God-given. Uh, it is to be maintained. But I want to say that even in this passage, Paul does not give you any room for a different interpretation. Uh, because in the original Greek sentence, it is actually re read like this. It's actually written like this. There's no Jew and there's no Greek. There's no slave. There's no free. There's no male and female. Uh, these are the exact Greek words. So you see, the, the last one is very different. Uh, the first two are really just distinguished. But when it comes to the third one, male and female is always together. Uh, for male and female, when it comes to God, it's always complementary. Both are made in his, in his image. Finally, in our conclusion, for our conclusion, uh, in verse 28 also, Paul says, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now we see how the theme of one has come full circle. Earlier, Paul says that it is for one offspring, which is Christ. And now there's, and there's one God who gives this promise. And now all those in Christ have become one body, one church. So you see how we see the one, one, one all coming through. So brothers and sisters, you have all come together as one through this one common faith. Let us hold firm to this one gospel, rejecting any other false gospels. And let us exhort one another to live rightly, uh, according to this right understanding of the gospel. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you indeed that not only you are a loving God, you are indeed a God who is righteous. Your word, your law, Reveal, uh, indeed, our sinfulness before you. Help us again as we ponder the rightness of the law, as we are reminded again of our sinfulness, that one is, once again we will turn to Christ in faith and they will receive the joy of the blessing. In his name we pray. Amen.